I want to speak to you this morning on the topic of Jesus cursing the fig tree. Mark chapter 11, verse number 1. As is always the case, if you walked in here without a Bible this morning and would like to follow along, which we would encourage you to do, uh, there's one in the chair in front of you. Should be one anyway. And as always, if you need a Bible, don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that with you. Let's start verse number 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into, the, into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say for men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful, Lord, that now we come to this such, such an important part of the gospel of Mark, of the gospel narrative, uh, as we come to Passion Week, as we come to that last week, so important. Speak to us today, we pray. I, I pray for your filling. I pray that you would help me today uh, to say the things that I ought and nothing else. I pray, Lord, you would take whatever uh, stammering words come forth from me and apply them to hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit behind them. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here today who has not yet accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord and their King, I pray today they would do that. And I pray if there are any Christians who are in need of uh, encouragement or strength or conviction based on any of these things, that Lord will do a work in our heart. Let none of us leave this place without being changed by your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 11 opens with Jesus and his disciples drawing nigh to Jerusalem and then entering it on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey. And this is, of course, the event that is usually referred to as the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we speak about it every Palm Sunday or most Palm Sundays. It was the beginning of the most important week in the history of the world. And from this point forward now in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be concerned with the events that took place in that last week. The highlights of that week looked something like this. This is just highlights, but kind of gives you the flow. On, on Sunday, on this day that we're reading about here at the beginning, Jesus rode into Jerusalem astride a donkey. It was in direct fulfillment of prophecy, as we'll see in just a moment. On Monday, the next day, he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, we find him embroiled in various controversies with the Jewish leadership, with the scribes and with the elders and the chief priests. There's really nothing said about Wednesday in Scripture, so it's a silent day, and so we assume it to have been perhaps a quiet and restful day, nothing the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about anyway. Thursday was primarily occupied with the preparation for the Passover and the events that took place in the upper room. We just observed the Lord's Supper, and that was uh, instituted there on Thursday. On Friday, our Lord was tried and crucified. On Saturday, his body lay in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. And then on Sunday, glory to God, he rose from the dead. What a week. What a week. Without doubt, the greatest week in the history of mankind. And so the events that are described here in this passage that we have just read are significant in that it kicked off this most important of weeks. As he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was also significant because he was here declaring for the very first time that he was the king, that he was the Messiah. There was no hidden message now. There was nothing uh no attempt to hide his purpose here. The people knew the prophecies. The people knew Zechariah. And they knew that when he came riding in on the back of a donkey, he was doing so in direct fulfillment of prophecy. And he was saying, I am your king. I am your Messiah. And I think that, that point is very, very key for us to understand the other things that are taking place in this passage. We need to understand that context that he was announcing that. There's all kinds of topics here that we could talk about. There's, there's, there's uh, for example, there's quite a bit about prayer. In this passage, 
and that's down in verses 17 through 26. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that today. I'd rather look at something else, but I recommend it for your study. There's some good stuff there, some very important teaching on prayer. For example, he spoke of the importance of both corporate and private prayer. Prayer is not just something we do alone by ourselves. There is scriptural teaching, and Jesus taught it here, that we should come together and pray together. In verses 22 through 24, he taught about the importance of faith in prayer. Ironside, in his commentary on this, uh, on that particular passage, said, Faith counts the things that are not as though they are. So he talked about faith in prayer, and you could study that. Jesus taught that results are limitless with prayer in verses 23 and 24. And he taught also that an unforgiving spirit hinders our success in prayer in verses 25 through 26. A lot of good things there. On that last point, Paul also told the Ephesians something similar. He said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Oh, how we need to learn to forgive one another. But Jesus said here that it can affect our prayer life if we don't. So prayer is, is a topic. We could spend time on it, but I'm going to drop that and leave that for your own study. Another topic that I think is, is of some interest here, and it's, it's just one that we maybe see it just in passing, but nonetheless is still interesting, and that has to do with the disciples. Verse 11 mentions that the twelve were still with him. And that might seem an insignificant detail to you, but I did read one comment which I thought was interesting. One man said, this brief passage also shows us something about the twelve. They were still with him. By this time, it must have been quite plain to them that Jesus was committing suicide, at least as it seemed to them. Sometimes we criticize them for their lack of loyalty in the last days, but it says something for them that little as they understood what was happening, they still stood by him, at least up to this point. And I thought that was an interesting thought. Another thing maybe you could study on your own and uh, see what you think about that. But, of course, most significantly in this passage, uh, there's a lot here about Jesus himself, Jesus Christ himself, several items of interest. For example, we see his boldness in openly declaring himself to be the king. I mean, imagine, imagine the uh, gall, if you will to take that prophecy, which everybody knew what it meant, and get on that donkey and ride into town. I mean, that that was a bold thing to do, for him to make that declaration. We see his authority in the last part of the passage, which we won't talk about this morning. The last few verses uh, talk about them questioning his authority, and we may possibly discuss that the next time. But uh, we see his authority. He was declaring that he had authority over all these things. In verse number 11, we read this interesting thing, which I think only Mark mentions, that when he went into the temple, he looked around upon all things. Another one of those little phrases, which we think that's not very important. But it it describes the fact that he was claiming authority over all this. This was his temple. This was his house of prayer. And he was claiming authority over all of it, inspecting it and all that took place therein. And then, of course, we see his finality in his cursing of the fig tree. And that's what I want to concentrate on in this study, his cursing. You see, some people have a hard time with that event. You have a hard time with that event? They think Some people seem to think it's so unlike Jesus. Loving, kind, good Jesus. He cursed the tree. Poor little tree. He condemned the tree. He killed the tree. Do you have trouble with that? 
A lot of people do. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite commentators, says this. He said, if he had the power to kill the tree, why didn't he use that power to restore the tree and make it produce fruit? Do you find yourself asking questions like that? I like Warren Wiersbe, but I'm not sure where he was going with that thought. There's another commentator. His name is William Barclay, and and I drew heavily on his commentary uh, on Mark for this particular message. But he has great difficulty with this incident. And I will tell you, if you ever, if you have to have a, a, a book by William Barclay on your shelf, I will tell you that you always have to say anything he says with a grain of salt. Because he's one of these people who, when he comes across a difficulty in Scripture, he immediately flees away from literal interpretation and comes up with all kinds of strange ideas. So you can't always listen to what he says. But in this case, his thoughts are interesting, and I think his thoughts would probably describe what some in the room are thinking right now. Why would, why would Jesus curse the poor fig tree? Listen to what he says. He says, there could be no doubt that this, without exception, is the most difficult story in the gospel narrative. I'm not sure I agree with that either, but to take it as literal history presents difficulties which are well nigh insuperable. The story does not ring true. To be frank, the whole incident does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems a certain petulance in it. It is just the kind of story that is told of other wonder workers, but never never of Jesus. Further, we have this basic difficulty. Jesus had always refused to use his miraculous powers for his own sake. He would not turn the stones into bread to satisfy his own hunger. He would not use his miraculous powers to escape from his enemies. He never used his power for his own sake. And yet here he uses his power to blast the tree which had disappointed him when he was hungry. Worse, the whole action was unreasonable. This was the Passover season, that is, the middle of April. The fig tree in a sheltered spot might bear leaves as early as March, but never did a fig tree bear figs until late May or June. Mark even says that it was not the season for figs. So why blast the tree for failing to do what it was not possible for it to do? It was both unreasonable and unjust. Some commentators to save the situation say that what Jesus was looking for was green figs, half-ripe figs in their early stages, but... Such unripe fruit was unpleasant and was never eaten. The whole story does not seem to fit Jesus at all. What are we to say about it? Indeed. What are we to say about it? What are we to think about it? Well, the key to understanding it is to realize that Jesus did not do this for his own personal reasons. Barclay makes that assumption throughout. He was not angry or petulant about the tree. He was not throwing a temper tantrum because he wanted figs and there were no figs. That's not what Jesus was doing at all. It was an object lesson. It was an object lesson. He was making a statement about the nation of Israel, which is often pictured in Scripture as a fig tree. I think much of this section pictures the last call, the last verse of the invitation, if you will, for Israel. And when we consider the context in which all of this took place, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I believe Jesus was teaching, among other things, that to reject your Messiah is to invite eternal judgment. He was saying, your king has come. You have a choice whether to accept or reject him, but you invite judgment if you choose to reject him. So let's look at those three things, those three different thoughts This morning, he was saying this first to the Jews, mostly to the Jews, but I think it applies to all of us, certainly at least by application. So those three things. First of all, your king has come. Your king has come. In his entry into Jerusalem, as we have seen, riding atop a donkey, Jesus was openly declaring himself to be 
Israel's Messiah. Matthew, in his account, Matthew chapter 21, said that this was a direct fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that prior to this, Jesus had always discouraged anybody openly declaring who he was. Jesus always told him, shut up. Don't tell people. I mean, think, we've seen it several times in Mark. Uh, back in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demon who possessed the man Jesus healed in the synagogue, he knew who he was, and he said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Later in that chapter, we read that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. He cleansed the leper and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Up to this point, that had been his approach. But now, as he rides into Jerusalem, there's no more hiding. There's no more uh, keeping it quiet. Now, he was saying openly, loudly, brazenly to the people of Jerusalem, Your King has come. Your Messiah is here. Just exactly as the prophet said. So there's a first thought, your king has come. The second thought is, you may reject him if you wish. One thing that becomes very clear as we study these events is this. The Jews, though they were seeking a Messiah, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Now, of course, not all of them. Some did not. The disciples who were still right there, as we've seen, they didn't reject him. Neither did Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus or, or some others, but most did. And the cries of Hosanna that we can still hear hanging in the air after he rode into town uh, would be replaced by different sounds in just a few short days. We'll get to Mark chapter 15 here before too much longer, and we'll see that those who passed by blasphemed him. He's on the cross. Those who passed by blasphemed him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said he saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So just a few short days from now, we have the people who are just walking by in the street and seeing the crucifixion, reviling him, rejecting him. We see the chief priests and the elders, the scribes, rejecting him. And we see even those on the cross. Of course, we know that one of them did turn to him, but initially reviling him and rejecting him. So the nation of Israel as a whole did not then and does not now accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. I've been privileged to attend or to visit the Holy Land uh, several times, four times now, I think. Every time that you go to Israel, one of the places that you are most touched by, at least I am most touched by, is when you go to the Western Wall. The Western Wall, some of us would call that uh, the Wailing Wall. Uh, you may have seen pictures or videos uh, of the Jewish people standing next to that wall and praying. And they're praying so devoutly and so seriously. And they're praying for the Messiah. They're praying for the Messiah to come. And every time I've been there, I think, it's so sad. He has already come. And you have rejected him. 
there is a uh, quote from the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof is a, is a wonderful musical if you like that sort of thing. But this one quote toward the end always saddens me. It's a musical about Jewish people and persecution that they're going through and difficulties. And at the very end, in a particularly difficult time, when they're being kicked out of their town, one of the characters asks his rabbi, he says this, Rabbi, we've been waiting for the Messiah all our lives. Wouldn't this be a good time for him to come? And I always, I, I, I get choked up every time I see that particular quote because it's so sad. I want to shout, he's already come. And you rejected him. And continue to reject him. And of course the Jewish people are not the only ones to reject the king. The Gentiles also rejected him. We can't just put it on them, on the, on the Jews. Certainly not. And, of course, not all the Gentiles did. Some, like the Syrophoenician woman with great faith in Matthew 15, or the Roman centurion with great faith in Luke chapter 7, did not. But just like the Jews, most of the Gentiles rejected Christ. Pilate, for example. Pilate, the Roman governor, considered Jesus only as a king of the Jews. And he would have put it in quotes. There's no evidence that he ever even thought about the fact that Jesus might be his king. Probably the prevailing attitude among all the Gentiles. Well, as we ponder these facts, we have to remember something. We have to remember they're not just facts of history. They are facts of history, but, but they also apply to us, you and I, 21st century America today, because you and I have the same opportunity to accept or to reject our Messiah, accept or reject Jesus Christ. Sadly, rejecting him is still the choice of most people today. Jesus comes to many, even in our day. Through a variety of means. He comes to many through the preaching of his gospel. And yet when the invitation to accept it is given, most reject. Jesus comes to some through the witness of some friend or family member, some soul winner sharing the truth with them. And yet when the invitation is given, when most hear such a plea, they turn away. My wife, my first wife, had a uh, dear aunt that she loved. This aunt lived a long ways away from her. I think she lived in Florida, if I remember correctly. And there came a day when Beth got very, very concerned about this aunt's soul. And I can't remember uh, what what was the driving force behind that, whether she had taken sick or what, but there, she was at the very end of her life. And so Beth wrote her a letter, and she poured out her heart to this aunt, you know, how much she loved her and cared about her and was concerned for her soul and shared the gospel and tried to encourage her to trust Christ while there was still time. It was a very good letter. A few days later, Beth got a letter back in response. And it was one of the meanest, nastiest letters I've ever seen. It was just so sad about basically telling her to mind her own business, that she didn't need a Savior, and she wasn't interested. I mean, she just plainly, flat out, in every way you can imagine, rejected Christ. It was, it was so sad. It was so sad. But you see, here's the truth. We have the, we have the free will to do that, do we not? We can reject Christ if we choose to. You can choose to reject your king if you want to. Throughout the scripture, we see two different options, and those two different options are everywhere. Either believe or not. Either accept or reject. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, John 1, 10 through 12. Two choices. 
Two choices. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Two choices. And you are free to accept or reject, to believe or not. But remember, and this brings us to the third point now, you invite judgment if you do reject. You invite judgment if you reject. Let's turn our attention again to that fig tree, that poor little fig tree. Turn our attention to that cursed, withered fig tree. And it is definitely hard for some to understand. We, we've already considered whether Jesus directed his ire at the tree for some personal reason or out of some selfish rage because he was hungry, hangry, as Dan mentioned before the service today. And we've already concluded that such was not his motivation at all. We've already said that this miracle pictured the Jewish people, for the fig tree was often used to picture them. Hosea, the prophet, for example, used that imagery. He said, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits of the fig tree in its first season. As the leaves of that fig tree promised figs, so Israel's anticipation of a Messiah promised acceptance of the Messiah. As the leaves promised figs, so Israel's outward religion promised inward spirituality. But upon closer inspection, there were no figs. Israel did not accept the Messiah. And the outward religion so much on display didn't spring from an inward spirituality. And so the fig tree was cursed and done away with. It was an object lesson that gave Israel, and I hope gives us, a clear warning that judgment awaits those who reject their king. Verse 20 tells us that judgment will be complete. And in the Revelation, we see an even stronger statement about that. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The judgment is complete. The judgment will be forever. Verse number 14, uh, Jesus said. Matthew 25:41. Then he, he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting Fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into everlasting punishment with the righteous into eternal life. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark chapter 9 and verse 44. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the lesson of the fig tree is that you invite judgment by not accepting the king. So what are we to think of it? What are we to think of Jesus cursing and condemning and killing the fig tree? Well, as we've seen, it was a warning to Israel. And it ought to be a warning to you and to me as well. To reject your Messiah is to invite eternal punishment. To reject your king is to invite judgment. So I ask you this morning, your king has come. Have you accepted him? Will you accept him if you have not done so? The songwriter said, Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken, what meaneth the sudden call? What will you do with Jesus? Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you evade him as Pilate tried, or will you choose him, whatever betide? 
Vainly you struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? Will you, like Peter, your Lord, deny? Or will you scorn from his foes to fly? Daring for Jesus to live or die, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus, I give thee my heart today. Jesus, I'll follow thee all the way, gladly obeying thee. Will you say, this I will do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me?